every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Jordan Shank, Chief Brand Officer at Flash Food, a technology company working to eliminate retail food waste by connecting consumers with discounted food nearing its best by date. In this episode, Jordan shares with us how to push through the zeitgeist around what you do to change consumer perception. And she talks about some unique tactics and strategies for mobilizing your fan base to boost sales and brand awareness, even without Coca-Cola dollars. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Qualified. If you're a revenue team that runs your business on Salesforce, Qualified will accelerate your lead generation, pipeline, and ultimately revenue. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Jordan Shank, Chief Brand Officer at Flash Food, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Excited to have you on the show. We're going to chat marketing, we're going to chat brand, we're going to chat all things flash food. And as always, our show is brought to you by our good friends at Qualified. You can go to qualified.com to learn more. Qualified is the number one conversational sales and marketing platform for companies' revenues teams. Go to qualified.com to learn more. First question, Jordan, what was your first job in marketing? So I initially had this grand vision that I was going to... I'd studied Mandarin Chinese and finance, and I had assumed that I was going to go the route of banking. And for whatever reason, my sort of giant life dream was to go into mergers and acquisitions or some form of Asia-Pacific-centered work. I did not do that, obviously, because I am here with a background in doing a lot of marketing. So my first job was actually was out in New York City. I had decided to not take the route of finance. And it was one of those situations where like a friend of my mom knew some people at Interbrand that had just started a sort of spin out agency. And they hired me as like a contractor, though I think I was a glorified intern to essentially do a whole bunch of research, market research, UX research around a project, a couple of projects at a time. One was like rebranding the country of Mexico, oh, which was which was a really interesting body of work. Another piece was repositioning this company that everyone experiences, but no one knows about, which is Underwriters Laboratories, which is essentially the governing body of approving the safety of products. So I was, that was what I was doing, but I was also a contractor living in New York. So I had 19 other jobs working, doing like data entry for a hedge fund and then working at a bar on Thursdays so that I could, you know, have my tab paid for kind of thing. Like it was very, it was very true to its form, but there was not a lot of glory at the time. And flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the amazing company Flash Food. Yeah. So I think a lot of folks in 
the states at least won't have heard of flash food yet. We have just started the journey in, in building building market here in the U.S., but company, you know, started about a little over seven years ago, initially in Canada. You know, what we had seen was something that is just true globally is that within our grocery and within our grocery stores, 40% of all food is thrown out. The majority of that food is fresh food. So meats, produce, dairy, you name it. And it's thrown out for a number of reasons. I mean, it can be anything from overordering damage, didn't sell. While we still have that, have an issue of, you know, food insecurity is greater than ever. And you even compound that with the past, you know, couple of years post pandemic where food has become more unaffordable than ever. And so our mission is effectively to partner with the best grocery retailers to feed families, not landfills. We had started, we've started that journey in the States where we're sort of on the edge of what I would say is sort of a moment of reintroduction that brands do, but I'm, I am the chief brand officer there. So I oversee our marketing function, our comms function, and our marketing function is inclusive of our marketing technology as well as our retail and brand marketing. So it's a pretty cool job. And (laughs) I got a lot of things I could say about it, but I'm, I feel like you got a lot and of questions asked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, first off, obviously, a uh, slightly different type of company than we normally have on here. A lot of B two B tech companies, but but you are a technology company, and mm-hmm. and you're obviously making the world a much better place. Let's get to our first segment: the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given. You are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? Trust tree is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. You told us a little bit about what y'all do, but who do you sell to at Flash Food? Yeah, so we're a double-sided marketplace, and we're a double-sided marketplace that's moving into sort of that hyper growth side of things. So we sell to a couple different people, right? We have to sell to our retail partners and grocers because we are an infrastructure change, not only in terms of the, call it more, I mean, software tech that we have, but we also have quite a bit of hardware. It's not deep hardware tech, but you know, we have giant refrigeration units that end up in, in sort of the front of the grocery stores near a red box or wood is where you've typically seen where you would typically encounter us. So that's one interesting part of my job in terms of how we sell, how do we integrate, how do we market, if you will. The other side of our marketplace, which is our consumer side. So how do consumers shop? How do they buy the food? How do they, who are we acquiring? How do we come in? So that's, it is, it's separate, but it's also integrated. Like the deepest, darkest marketing when you're in startups that I would say are early market, pre-market are... One, sort of all of the things that you would have once known around, like, how do we deploy a traditional campaign? Or what does this, what does a cyclical calendar look like is, is important, but in some ways, often the stage of the company. So when I think about, you know, my job, which is scaling on either side of it, oftentimes the like tactics that you would once overlook in other roles become that of like your greatest success. So I'll use like impossible as an example. You know, in the early days, we built 
this sort of cra- like a crazy amount of press. The whole launch strategy was around sort of these big partnerships with chefs. The amount of events and launches I did was like, I felt like a hundred within a year kind of thing. What wasn't happening though, was the pull through in places that impossible was not. So if you think about it, we were effectively in a couple of places in New York City with like billions of impressions. We had no scale across the country. We also didn't, as a company, philosophically believe in let's deploy like big advertising campaigns because we wanted to create advocacy from the ground up. So what we did was knowing that we had this like massive email list of people who had opted in to just learn about us, but majority of them obviously were not based in the United States. We created like a campaign that was a demand generation campaign where we, and this is a crazy thing about retail. So grocery is still very much, it operates very close to its community. So things like submission boxes in a grocery store are still used to pull products in. Like you, like that gener- that manager reads those still, like it's paper. We're not talking like- That's wild. That is like how, so if you want something new in your grocery store, you will still request it to your store manager or put it in the box. And we knew that was a reality, even at the level of the biggest supermarkets. That's how it is. And they actually read them. That's, I think, a really beautiful thing about retail you don't realize is that they care a lot about those sort of groups or communities they serve. So there are meetings where they'll go over it. So we were like, what if we totally blitz those boxes? <laughs> And mobilize this base of people to go out and do the submissions for us. And we'll figure out some sort of like reward system, which I think was a tote bag at the time. Like my team was like packing thousands of tote bags, like in the office. But what we did was employ our fan base, like our building fan base to essentially go out and be our sales team. And that's a crazy thing to do. It's a ton of manual labor. Like we had to have like people emailing us back pictures of like submissions that they had made and then we like honor it. And it's just this whole sort of like on and on kind of thing. But it was a really cool campaign because it allowed the retailers to obviously they'd read the press, but then they would go to their submissions boxes and it'd be like, when are you getting impossible here? And it would happen with food service as well. So I thought that was just like a one of those, it feels so tactical, but like the impact of it brought us into some of the biggest grocers and restaurants in the country. And so those are the things that I often in growth, don't, it's not to overlook, but to actually over leverage on because you can do a lot with the community or the sort of customer early adopters you have to make things sticky. And we know that the word of mouth side of things is what drives the sale. So the more you can mobilize that, that that's the better. Yeah. And the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's exactly it. And a lot of times you can't ignore what your customers want when you're sort of dealing with this like B2B, B2C sort of thing, which was the same Impossible was no different. Like we still had to sell the technology to the industry in addition to generating consumer demand. The product itself was like, you know, meat tech, not tech tech in the in the way that we would like traditionally define it. And then you think about like when you're dealing with double-sided marketplaces, so it's okay, how do I leverage customer demand? Well, then how do I connect that back to the retailer demand I need to generate? So then what we would do is have a really robust LinkedIn play where we would be building lists and cloning lists off the emails and LinkedIn profiles of the hundreds of people that reported into any one person of sort of power and targeting all of that media back at them at LinkedIn. So we never lost the sort of relevance in the feed. So we had these sort of, there was a play going on there. Or we would have really smart buyouts of certain publications at certain push periods. 
We even marketed the campaigns we were marketing on the consumer side on the side of the retailers. Because one thing that I think is also overlooked is like people on the business side are consumers too. We often forget that. It's like, they're not like, it's all of a sudden you become a business person and then you don't know how to be a consumer. So we would actually just parlay that off of each other so that we were using both sides of it to generate just excitement and demand. And it, and I think it worked. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. As you're thinking about the two-sided marketplace, mm-hmm. how do you budget accordingly to both sides of the market? Is there like some sort of calculation that you do there? There's never a perfect equation for any of this. And it all comes back to ultimately like the volume of customers you need to sort of make the call. I'd say on the account side, it's there are a lot more implications that goes into sort of standing up a, call it partnership, right? It's not going to be just based off of, can I, in the same way with performance marketing, you know, move folks through whether it's social or digital ads, like there, it's actually less of a formula there. When I think about the, let's say on the business side of it, I'm always thinking more about what are the, you know, milestone events that I need to do in terms of like where I'll see central, you know, moments of gathering of the right people. If I am running performance or anything in life cycle, how much of that I need to do, I can oftentimes like, I'll just be real. Like it's a hard one to to predict and project. And a lot of times, like with our org, for example, you know, marketing is a service function to making sure that like awareness is scaled. And when our, you know, our growth team gets out there, they've actually shown up and folks know who we are. That's sort of my KPI and how I think about it, which a lot of it is like comms led. So my budgets tend to be relatively light there, just in terms of if you're going out for customer acquisition, where I know when I'm turning on a market, I need at least a you know a hundred thousand people to know about this. Sort of knowing where my conversion data sits, and then the estimates I can make in terms of like retention. That can be a little bit more formulaic, but that's how I mean. It usually nets out that you'll put more in consumer demand, and then more in sort of like longer sort of term activations. That feels a bit different, but there is no formula. This is like the art and the science of it. So who's in that committee that you were talking about on the account side? Like these retail partners, who's making those type of decisions and who's in the proverbial buying committee? Yeah, I mean, I think it ranges. You know, for us, we've, you know, something I shared earlier is that we're different in that when a CPG, like a, a just a right sort of call it a beverage, if you will, or a piece of impossible meat ends up on the shelf. It's a very different relationship at a grocery level, given that there's the buyers, there's the pre-existing sort of shape of the shelf and category. When we're coming in, because we have refrigeration units that take up a ton of space, we have you know new ways in which the store is potentially culling food and moving food instead of it going out on the dock and then out to the landfill. It's now going you know into there's some big infrastructure changes that do happen. We tend to work with leadership teams, but we're still engaging and we work with leadership teams for like how we move it in. Like we need, that's where the alignment comes from, but then the actual activation of it is at a store level. So we work with both. We have to ultimately get buy-in at the sort of lead level, but we also get buy-in at the region, they call it regional manager level. And Mm -hmm. we're still then training store to store. So we touch, I mean, we go with everyone when we do it. And there's a lot of stakeholders that have to get buy-in. And I'm sure it's similar with when you're talking to different folks sort of in the SaaS realm. Some of these infrastructure changes are like the stakeholders go up and down the chain. 
Yeah, I think that the most recent statistic was if it's a $100,000 deal or more, there's 17 stakeholders in a B2B sale at this point. Or like the buying committee is like 17 people, which is pretty wild. Yeah. I would say that it's still that and more depending on sort of the size of what you're rolling out. And one interesting thing for us is because we have so much sort of mission and goodwill tied to what we're ultimately doing and the why behind what excites grocers about us is going back to grocers care about their communities. They don't, no one loves throwing out food. That's not something it's yeah, that right. anyone goes into business for. What tends to happen is our value proposition becomes like an incredible marketing and comms vehicle for them as well. So not only are we, you know, building technology to integrate into their handhelds, like there's this whole technical side of it where IT security, the tech teams are coming together. Then you've got the store teams, which is like, how do you train the store floor to like move product? Then you've got the whole other side of it, which is, well, how are we building the marketing story, the comm stories that ultimately help build a greater sense of goodwill for the brands that we work with. So we end up, you made me think 17. I was like, man, I wish it was 17 because I feel like some days it's 80 <laughs> that you you end up working with. But it's, again, it just comes down to like the value chain is so expansive. And like the change that we are sort of moving through on the floor is really unique. We celebrate even at an assistant manager level. So a big program that we created to recognize is we have our sort of store champion program, right? We recognize the champions or the leaders within the stores, whether that's on LinkedIn or sort of in our regular newsletters. And that's, again, going back to, it's not even just like the regionals aren't the ones sort of in the, in it doing the work with us on the sort of floor, on the floor level outside of our champions. But, you know, every department in a grocery store participates in a program like flash food, meat, produce, dairy, everyone's a part of making sure that the food that they're moving to sell through the platform is, you know, coming from their department. It's pretty massive when you think about there's one individual behind every single one of those departments in a grocery store that runs that particular department. And so we do a lot of work um, to recognize that because without them, the food doesn't end up on the platform, right? You know, a lot of how I would, I've been comparing it like lately internally is if you remember Airbnb in the early days, do you remember like sure. before they trained hosts to make things yeah. interesting? And it was like totally wild west. All the photography was up. Like we're sort of in that, I would say that sort of equitable stage in that we've got a labor, like an amazing force that takes pictures of the food, gets it on the platform. It's similar to that of the host, right? It makes it attractive to be merchandised and sold on the platform. And everything we sell is 50 to 75% off. So you're working with like highly discounted, which is super cool, affordable stuff. And then you have to connect the consumer to it. So it's like truly a very comparable reality. And we have products like our tech products are built for both of those, right? They which is similar to that of Airbnb. Like you have to have a hosting platform in the same way you have to have a yeah. marketplace to shop. But we're early days in, in sort of that journey as far as like, how do you sort of mobilize a one group to like, A, do something completely different that they haven't done and B, make it like super attractive to the consumers that are going to come in and shop. So I don't know if you check the app out, but that's the, the easiest way to compare what we're doing and where we're at, which... I think it's a super cool challenge. <laughs> well, so I was going to ask you that. I did check out the app and also I checked out the website. And so I'm curious, you know, it's very much built for the consumer. How do you figure out a way to, to speak to both audiences? 
Yeah. So the consumer app you engage with will always be the app for the consumers because that's right. your shopping. Well, yeah. Yeah. Web is, there's an update coming next year, which will be exciting. But then on the question of the technology we develop for retailers, we that's where I said we have a whole separate product there. So our technology integrates with our retailers. So we, on our sort of, on our retailer, the retailer tech that we've developed is it is obviously connected by how data moves through the two, because obviously we need to make sure that the products that are getting posted on one side end up on the marketplace. But the actual tech itself is different because we're integrating into store tech. Some super new, some 25 years old, you know, and we actually build that tech to integrate within those systems so that there isn't disruption to the day-to-day way in which grocery stores um, essentially manage their inventory and food and make the decisions for where things go. So it's very technical. And I wouldn't put that on the sort of forefront of like customer, like it's not going to drive consumer demand. But when we go into sort of our sales cycles, it's much more robust with that. So typically we'll sort of hit that with the usual face-to-face conversations. You know, we're developing some more sort of explanatory video content to help make that a little bit more simplified. So that as we think about scaling beyond chains, because we've worked with sort of larger chains to grow as we think about, you know, a strategy for independence or bringing on, because our goal would be all grocers, right? And that doesn't just mean the big ones that have 10,000 doors. It would mean, you know, the family chain down the street that's got a couple of like really solid restaurants that are still dealing with food waste and want a way to do it. So it's a lot of stuff that we're like in progress of building today, which is, I mean, it's super cool. Like I said, you're catching me on the day fresh out of planning, fresh out of like right. all of that. So I'm like, ah, I wish, come pull me back on in six months and you'll be like, dang, what we had our first chat and everything you said was true, Jordan. It all came true, but it's a perfect time to chat about planning. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your uncuttable budget items? So philosophically, this is then this is me as a marketer. I think that we should always try to operate in a world where we're getting as close as we can to sort of the zero-sum marketing game. Like in terms of how we don't get ourselves in a situation where we're sort of on that always on burn of performance acquisition. How do we rely on our product itself to do harder work for us, like incentivizing referrals or, you know, drumming up a much tighter sort of life cycle system. Like those are, that's just like where I operate philosophically. So naturally when I'm looking at the scope of my budget, things that I'll always the always on things that I'll always make sure we have is a healthy level of sort of commitment to owned and earned. Like how are we thinking mm-hmm. about the storytelling piece of this with how we leverage, whether it's things at a press level, things at an influence level, and how do we max- maximize that with affiliate, for example? Like how can we maximize that with different publishers to drive that? Because as we know, and it, the reality is that the media will always generate sort of that halo effect, especially for growth startups, right. because we don't have Coca-Cola dollars. Like we can't go out and buy a bunch of out of home. That doesn't fundamentally make any sense for the business. We don't also have the budgets to be doing like full digital takeovers on a certain website. 
And we also should be really sort of stringent with how we look at the performance budget. And so that that would be sort of the first thing. I'm, I'm always very, I'm always looking to make sure that's funded in a way because what I've seen in my time, whether it's with my own business and even with Impossible and obviously with Flash Food, the amount of awareness, and when I say awareness directly attributed to downloads or sell through that can happen when you have a viral TikTok video that ends up on Good Morning America that cost you all of a nothing to do because the person did it on their own free will. We just happened to parlay the story up at the right time. Right. Has a greater impact than, you know, going out and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a campaign. And then when I think about campaigns, I, where I start to, where I don't budge in the budget is always looking at my year and saying, and this is what I'll, I'll sit with like finance or other leads, like what is the push periods that we are going to take a bet on? If we don't have the data that tells us exactly when we've seen sell through be the easiest or we're building a new product, like when can we, when do we as a team want to choose a moment in time that we're going to anchor spend around? Because what I've seen with a lot of businesses, the second you start to get in that flow of just, we always have to be spending a hundred grand is the second you stop looking at and asking yourself why, and how do I make it work harder? So what I'll usually do is plan to have that moment in time to really galvanize the teams and the organizations to, to put action around something versus getting in that cycle of spending just to spend. And you can sort of center that around your sales calendar. If you know, you've got these launches coming let's do it. If you know, in Q1, people are like, it's the cheapest time to advertise, but people are much more interested in new trial because it's less crowded. Don't spend all your money in Q4. Just right. And it's actually quite hard because what you'll find is, you know, you'll have those early conversations with finance and it's, you want this whole budget to be secured and you want all these resources. And I'm actually probably the first one to be like, I don't need that because A, I'm not going to spend it because I'd rather have that resource go to make sure that the product gets sharper. Because if I can put that investment towards a build on the product side, it's going to be way better for my MarTech side or my acquisition side. But if I can get you to commit to this quarter, we're really going to go for it. It's always going to end up a little bit better. But I think we're naturally inclined to think we have to squirrel as much as possible. With what's the period that we're putting our chips on the table? And then like, how are we investing in programs that can get us sort of those like PR halo moments that, that get it done? I always try to also have one moment in time where we invest in research, where we say, hey, we're mm. going to go out and do, this is going to be the one time a year. And it's again, it could be multiple times a year, but this is the time of year that we're going to say, who's our customer base? We're going to, we're going to say, and who is out there to acquire and interrogate that? And that work typically not only sort of sets the, sets the standard of where and who our customers are today, but it also informs the product roadmaps, right? Like maybe where we went, didn't get us there. Or maybe we acquired more of an audience that we didn't realize and why. So I'll always have a period where probably before a push period that we invest in some quantitative as well as qualitative understanding of our customer base, because that's where you know how to like, where, where to throw the spear. And I think, again, going back to like, when people sort of get in that flow of like, always spend to spend, you don't have those moments where you're like, okay, how do I spend effectively? What about like sort of like experimental budget? It's, is there something that you want to be investing in over the course of next year or something that you're excited to invest in or debating, thinking about? I'm always keen on, as we think about where we spend, 
I mean, naturally, always where we spend on sort of the social, the various like social channels and digitally is always, it's an interesting one that like with Sunwing, for example, Sunwing company co-founded mission is to essentially make plant-based wellness accessible. We have beverage and powder line. I would say the success stories is like within the year that we developed a powder line, we were already, you know, moving into national target, Walmart, all of these things. It was a lot of hyper growth with sort of the product market fit. And we were like, oh my God, how are we going to support the velocities that we need? And so we, we really got sharp on how do we double down on certain channels? Like I was mentioning that of TikTok. And what tactics outside of like traditional ad develop, like deployment, can we leverage to either sort of scale up acquisition and or I mean, maximize spend to be real? So we developed this alchemy of white labeling as well as organic influence that like directly drove our sort of success in that of different retailers like Target or others to move product on the shelf in a way that was like competing with some of their biggest sort of whales, like the vital proteins of the world. And we were just doing it all through paid influencers and then occasionally like boosting whitelisted. And that that was really surprising to me because if I had, again, come from like the world prior to even impossible when I was at a place like Wyden and Kennedy, I'm dealing with like $100 million ad budgets, right? Like these are buco bucks that just kind of go everywhere. And mm -hmm. in this day and age, I'm like, wow, I can tell you that with that campaign, with you know, that small, like 40 grand of money, we were able to like become a compet, like a meaningful competitor on shelf. And so I get really excited about not like new platforms that are coming out because I think, yeah, I mean, any of those, they start to get wild west. You can test, you can break, you can figure out like ways to get the algorithm to favor you. So those are the things that I get a little bit excited about. And I'm, I'm excited to continue to scale it. Another big thing for next year, like, bets would be there's one piece of it which is like the affiliate marketing side mm -hmm. kind of going back to one is cool thing about our product is we have an amazing amount of just like the fandom at flash food is like unbelievable and this is what got me you know i was on the board of the company initially and so you sort of see these like tidbits of you know what's going on and you're working with the company what, the things that always got me really excited was like the amount of positive customer outreach the company has is like unparalleled. Most of the times you see that as like bulk complaints or resolutions, but you know, in any given week, there's hundreds and sometimes even more just positively reaching out saying, thank you so much for existing. Oh, that's awesome. Which you don't, which to me is like a marketer and like something that I've always been really passionate about is like, how do I mine for, for like fandom? And it goes back to the Demand Impossible campaign. Like, how do I understand if there's like a deep fan base there? And we absolutely have that. So as I think about next year, things like affiliate programs that incentivize our base to continue to share the message of what they love, you know, outside of just the like email and feel rewarded for that is something that I want to drive. We also want to drive that on the side of our press partners. Because what mm -hmm. I also have found is, you know, our relationships as we build this with our journalists is also really positive. So how do I create like an incentive structure not only for them and then also the, the rest of the influencers? So I'm very eager to sort of mobilize that for next year. 
Because again, it goes back to like, how do you get to sort of like the zero sum marketing budget, if you will. And if I can leverage this amazing group of people that love us to do, you know, the work of helping share our message, that's much better than like cranking something out on Facebook, you know? Yeah. It just means something. And so I always write, like, if you can get your brand to be loved so much, like this is a bad Jordan KPI that someone gets a tattoo of your brand, like you've made it. <laughs> like as soon as someone like physically puts your logo on their body, like yeah. you have created a brand that like is like deeply loved. We had that with Impossible in the first like 18 months when we launched. People were getting it like tattooed on their bodies. And I was like, wow, like we've really built something that works. And I'm hoping, like I said, if we talk again, you could ask me, you know, has someone gotten a tattoo yet of a flash food? And I will hopefully say yes. This is on a different show, but I interviewed the one of the marketing leaders at Liquid Death. And their CEO got a tattoo of one of their customers <laughs> who I think had a tattoo or something, but it's like a whole crazy thing. But basically they have customers that have tattoos. And so their CEO got a tattoo of that customer. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I think it's a KPI that sort of sits in the realm of folks that like to push the boundaries of culture and the zeitgeist. And a lot of like stuff that I've dealt with, like with Impossible, we had to like, we had to shift the zeitgeist around like what plant-based was, right? Like it wasn't, you know, the burgers in your frozen aisle that like felt like weird, you know, hard rock patties. Like that was the consumer perception. I was also, we also had a product that like has GMOs, is made in a large, seemingly scientific looking bioreactor, like a lot of headwind, right? So like, how do you sort of take all of those things, like know that there are sort of real challenges and then get it in there into the heart of what consumers want. And I think a lot what excites me a lot with flash food is we're taking something that's like the whole industry knows that it's bad and no one likes to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Consumers are sort of like, why would I, it's like you say in one sentence, like when you're at the shelf, like why would I buy something near its best buy? But then you go to your fridge and you like eat whatever, like mm -hmm. if you sniff it, you're like, I'm fine. So there's something really interesting in that tension for me to like, how do we actually it's, you can change behavior or you can create a really cool movement around doing something totally novel. And I'm like, how can we make this idea of food that's like near its best by the same as like how cool it is to shop for vintage clothes? Like what right. Depop did for Gen Z is really cool, right? And we've got that same sort of thing going where like, how do we sort of create that sort of spirit and moment around the perfect window of this food. Like truly it's the perfect window. It's like food ready to eat and the cheapest, like boom, go. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be that much more complicated than that. Yeah. And it's doing the world a lot better. Yeah. Great. But you know how consumers are, we want to care about it, but oftentimes accessibility around things that are sustainability, like it's just not there, right? You've got like plant-based is amazing, but it's still, 10x a commodity so like until you get there and you're like truly beating it like good luck right but when you think about things like where we are like we're actually beating commodity prices and it happens to be doing better so you know the consumer doesn't have to think about it they don't have to think about it or put their dollar out there to make it so i just think that's like really cool aside from like the things that we figure out as like an early stage startup with the clunkiness that happens with technology, we all know. But I think that's, again, it just goes back to like, it's the most exciting kind of business to get to, to grow. And then I think on the side of our retail partners, it's a great value proposition, right? The retailers, obviously, like they sell food, they shrink out food, 
they're margin sensitive businesses, we help alleviate some of that while supporting the community that they serve in terms of like accessibility and, you know, not, again, no one wants to like put this stuff on the trash truck. And even at the landfill, like the landfills, guys, we like the big problems. We like to figure out how to break down telephone poles and chemicals. If we could actually not have this whole place filled with food, we're in a better situation, which is sort of what you'll hear sometimes when you're engaging with waste management. Nobody sort of wants that to be the outcome of all of the the work, right? The labor that goes into making food and how it gets from point A to point B. So it's cool. Well, let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. Your quick questions and quick answers, just like how qualified helps companies generate pipeline quickly. Tap in your greatest asset, your website, to identify your most valuable visitors and instantly start sales conversations right there on your website. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick hits, Jordan. Are you ready? Yes. Do you have a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Not on my resume. Insane cook hosts epic dinner parties that if you've asked anyone in the Bay Area have attended are like, that's crazy. Where is my invite, Ben? You can have one if you want to come out to one. They're a good time. We just did like a surrealist dinner party and I like... Crazy. Did a bunch of like cooking from Dolly's cookbook, but then also like a bunch of other weird stuff. And it was a good time. Fun. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you recommend? So favorite book, Business book I've ever read, Making of a Manager. My team is just reading that right now. Julie mm-hmm. Joe wrote that. It's one of the best books I've ever read mm-hmm. in terms of tactical, a very tactical sort of description of what happens at that point when you become a manager or how to be it like straight up through the one-on-ones, reviews, everything. It's a beautiful book. It also gets, it makes you really uncomfortable. Like you wonder if you're actually doing a good job, which I also love about a good book. And then favorite podcast right now is Normal Gossip because... I love good tea and I love comedians unpacking random events that happen with strangers, like the drama on a kickball team. I need to hear that because I think the world's really heavy and it's more fun to hear like some of the levity that happens in the world around sort of the gossip around the corner. Last question. What is your best piece of advice for a first time chief brand officer or CMO? Partner with your finance org early. Partner with your security org early become bffs with your legal org early i love it jordan so awesome having you on the show for listeners just go download the flash food app and it's going to be coming to california soon which is extremely exciting and we're going to follow along we're so so excited for all the progress that you're sharing and that you've achieved any final thoughts anything to plug no you guys are on the journey now (laughs) we gotta if we want to solve this stuff we got to do it. There's only so many pretty looking things that I can put out there, but it's on a lot of us to sort of get in there and, and do it. So I love it. Awesome, Jordan. Thanks so much and take care. Thank you. Thanks again to our friends at qualified.com, a conversational sales and marketing platform that transforms the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more. <laughs>